This week on the 108 Podcast, the discipline of martial arts with George Ray. It's not only hard to lie to others, but it's hard to lie to yourself. This is really counter to my mental image of myself, and I don't like it. Maybe maybe you're not as bad as you thought you were. This is a marathon, not a sprint. How long does it take the average person to get a black belt? The average person doesn't get a black belt. You can't afford to hyper-specialize. If you specialize that deeply at something, you're probably going to get pretty damn good at that thing. We can't afford to put all the eggs in a basket. It's not really a matter of better or worse, it's just those goals don't really closely align. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 Podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to episode 302 of the 108 Podcast, The Discipline of Martial Arts. My guest today is Sensei George Rago. Today's episode is very special, very important to me, but more on that in just a moment. I got to do something first. We need to mention our sponsors and then we will get on to the episode. Listen, it's no surprise to anyone that law enforcement agencies suck at getting the word out to their citizens they serve. Whether it's debriefing a critical incident or educating the public about various aspects of law enforcement, it takes a special skill set that too many in law enforcement don't have. In this ever-changing world of social media, do you, your agency, and your community a favor and check out TOC Public Relations, a company ran by former law enforcement to help you get your message out in an appropriate and professional way. Check them out on social media as well as TOCPublicRelations.com. Let me tell you something you already know. Living a life in public service is a life of sacrifice, but you cannot serve the community or back your partner up if you're not physically able to do so. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, more than 40% of law enforcement officers are obese. Other studies have found that police officers are 25% more likely to die from weight-related disorders like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and even some cancers. Why continue to be a liability to your partners, your loved ones, your community, and yourself? Contact the folks at fit.responders and get your fight back. This episode is also brought to you by my new friends over at RTI Training, giving the type of training that incorporates humor and knowledge that cops respond to. Listen, we all know that you will never retain anything thanks to death by PowerPoint. So do yourself a favor and check out the new kids on the block when it comes to police training. They are revelationstraining.com. And guys, I also want to tell you about our sponsor, Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. They just came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It is the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members of the app get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and a monthly nutrition plan. They also have 24-hour, 7-day-a-week access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. So... Go to the app store of your choosing and download the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app today. It's available for Android as well as Apple, so get on it now. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Thin Vine Wines. Thin Vine Wines is a mission-driven wine company that proudly backs first responders and the military. With a background in law enforcement, their support for police, dispatch, fire, and the military is unwavering. Thin Vine Wines donates $2 from every bottle sold to law enforcement and military-driven nonprofits. Making awesome wine is the vehicle. Making wine with a purpose is the mission. 
Check out their social medias at Thin Vine Wines on Instagram and Facebook and order online at thinvine.wine using the code 10-8-T-E-N, the number 8, for $10 off two or more bottles of wine. Once again, guys, go follow and buy into those companies all ran by current or former law enforcement looking to make the world and life for those serving a little bit better. They sponsor me, so it's only fair that you guys go support them too. One like, one share, one follow, it goes a long way. And of course, if they have merchandise or something, go pick that up as well. Now on to today's show. Like I said, today's guest is George Rago. Sensei Rago has an amazing story, which we'll talk about shortly. But first, I want to talk about and thank Master Rago for his impact on my life specifically. So many years ago, I was a lowly rookie police officer. My lifelong experience between academics and customer service was not serving me well on the mean streets of Central Florida. So my FTO recommended that I seek out some martial arts training to help build some sort of confidence when out on the mean streets. So I did a brief Google search and found out that Master Rago's dojo was literally three minutes away from my house. So I signed up there, right? Because ease of convenience. So I reached out to him and I, I told him what I needed, who I was, things like that. And he welcomed me with open arms. I did my first um, my first class and really the rest is history, sort of. Um, I actually only trained and was an official student of Master Rago's for a few months. It wasn't very long. Uh, I ultimately stopped. We've talked about this before. I ultimately stopped field training. Uh, my dad got very sick. I... Went back to part-time, so I had a bunch of personal stuff and professional stuff going, and I took a massive pay cut when I went from full to part-time, so I, I couldn't I couldn't keep up. Even though Master Rego was more than willing to make things work so I could stay, uh, I just wasn't in it, and ultimately I moved away from that community, and uh, I just it wasn't feasible. I ended up doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu later down the way before I moved to where I am now. And after this conversation with Master Rago, wishing that he would move down this way also. But I know that's not happening. But I am actively looking for a new dojo to get started at. So after everything that I was talking about, you know, the my dad getting sick, stepping out of field training, things like that. I was at a major low point in my life. Um, you know, things were falling apart. I was, I was really, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was in crisis, but I was not in a good spot. So I reached out to Master Rago because I looked at him with, with a great deal of, of just admiration. I thought he was a very obviously strong, smart guy. And I figured, you know, I've been going the beaten path time and time again. Maybe, you know, I liked the way he taught martial arts. Maybe he's got something more for me. So I was looking for some level of wisdom that I wasn't used to or hadn't been exposed to, and I got it. He recommended I read The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, and I did, and it's still up on my bookshelf. And he also recommended I check out the app Headspace. I did that as well. Both of those things, the app Headspace, which got me, got me into meditation or kind of revisited it. I did that after my mom passed away and kind of lost track of it. So that and then the book, The Obstacle is the way were both steps into really changing my way of living and really the way I thought about life. Uh, I've since dived really deep into Stoic philosophy. Obviously, I've talked about it a lot. Um, Stoic philosophy has really become a way of life for me, or at least I really try to. And um, I, I just want to say that I don't think Master Rago will ever truly understand the impact that he made in my life by those two small recommendations. And that's why, to this day, 
Um, he is still someone that I lean on. Uh, he was actually one of my references for my current job. I mean, talk about respect for a human. Uh, and I was only a student for a small time, but I mean, literally be a lighthouse, not a tugboat. And he was that. So that really brings me into my topic for this intro segment. And that is mentors. Uh, I said in last week's episode that doing the work, the discipline comes down to yourself and it does. I mean, we're not, no one's going to say it doesn't, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. However, no one, well, few, I should say, are masters on their own. Everyone has a teacher, a guide, a mentor. It's important to find someone who is good at the thing you want to be good at and learn from them, even if the thing is life, right? (laughs) That's why we have life coaches. But there's one thing to have someone who truly is a mentor and is going to guide you to the right way and someone who just wants your money. And that's important as well. That's why we have people like Jocko, Joe Rogan, Dave Goggins. They have such massive followings because they're inspiring. People want to be like them. Now, I don't fault anybody that looks up to the people like that. Hell, each of them has accomplished so many things that I, too, want to accomplish. But I feel like a mentor should be, and typically is, someone a little bit more personable, someone that you can, like, reach out and touch. So not a Jocko, a Rogan, or a Goggins. They're good people to look up to and be inspired by, but they're not your mentor. They're not going to guide you. They don't have a a well-vested interest in your success, in your progression, right? At the end of the day... What they put out, their books, their podcasts, their videos, it's a business, right? So they're making money off of it, and that's that's fine, but a true, to me, a true mentor is someone who is more um, enriched and focused and, like, prideful in, show, in seeing that you do well, the mentee. And I also, I want to talk about this in, in one way, like... If you have a mentor and you're just not getting it, or, or even if you are getting it, it's actually a a bilateral relationship. You're making your mentor better as well. You're making your teacher better. We've all had training officers or teachers, right? Well, obviously we've all had those. You are making them better because what works for you is not going to work for the next guy. It's not going to work for whatever. So you start helping that and it's literally an iron sharpens iron type type of relationship. So the next question is how do we find mentors? Well, we don't go to mentorforme.com. That just doesn't exist. We don't just go up to people and ask people, hey, will you be my mentor? It, it doesn't work that way. It just happens. Naturally, we find people that we look up to and are influenced by them in a certain way. And then, obviously, they take an interest in us. Now, that could just be part of their job, right? We can talk about Master Rego or we can talk about like a sergeant or a field training officer that might have inspired you that might you know, might've taken you under their wing. Uh, you know, that is their job, right? Master Rego is a teacher. He is a sensei. However, beyond being a phenomenal sensei, I found out and I realized through just his interactions that he's an even better person. So he was teaching me how to deal with the curveballs of life as well as teaching me how to do a hip throw. You know, and I realized that there, there were so many different ways to look at all this. This is practices that I was able to use to this day. I learned more about life through him in my dark hours than I've learned from many others. And honestly, through no fault of his own, I learned more about life from him than I learned about anything on the mats, right? I mean, obviously, we can talk philosophical like, oh, well, I learned that when you get thrown, you get back up. 
Right. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. As my life and career has carried on, though, uh, I've found different mentors and different people that I look up to in different avenues. Right. There were police officers and sergeants and my training officers, things that I looked up to. And I, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to take, you know, what they were doing and run with it. I can think of many supervisors, field training officers and, you know, the memes. I make fun of the sh- of the shitty ones, but there were many, many good ones. And I feel like that that bears notice because I know that we're so quick to talk shit. But you really when you find the good one, when you find the ones you click with, you know, and, and again, again, it won't just be police work. It just won't be jujitsu when you find that one it's going to be multiple avenues of your life that just figure you figure it out right so i think it's very important to find a good mentor or five to help you get through this journey of life and again you know master rayo couldn't help me be a good police officer but that's why i had my sergeant kelly or my sergeant tom or my fto dave you know those guys and girls they were the ones that guided me through that and now that i'm in dispatch i have people that i look up to that way and you know things like that and really you know i i i'm worried about the way i'm putting this because i don't want you guys to be like is he my mentor like like that old kid's book are you my mommy no like it's one of those things that you won't even know you have it until you've had it for a while and you realize that you've moved your life to kind of fit and it just happens right it's, it's definitely a miyagi type thing So that being said, let's talk about today's episode. Let me give a formal introduction for my guest today. George Rago is a fifth degree black belt, a lifelong martial artist. Today, he's widely recognized as one of the most prominent minds, masters, and practitioners in the art of Jukido Jiu-Jitsu. He is the author of the book, The Founding of Jiu-Jitsu and Judo in America. And today, he is my guest on episode 302 of the 10A podcast. And just just a quick note about all that. This was my first ever in-person interview for the podcast. I figured this was a very significant thing. We filmed some of the video content you might have seen earlier this week. So there was a lot going on, right? So with that, it is not perfect. The sound quality is not, it's not great. Uh, It's not, you know, I didn't have my my fancy studio set up here. Studio, it's literally my bedroom. Um, So we interviewed in an empty dojo, so big empty space, so a lot of reverb with the old microphone that I used to do. And I was sitting on the wrong side of the microphone because I was trying to do like an over the table interview. So you can't really hear me, but you hear him. okay. but it's very echoey. So the quality of the conversation is great. The quality of the sound, not so great. So just try to like separate that thought from your mind and take the quality of the content. So. Without further ado, here we go. Episode 302 of the 10-8 Podcast, George Rago. Here we go. So this is the first time I've ever done a live in-person recording, so we'll see how this goes. I uh, did it a long time ago for other meetings. But anyway, uh, I will let you go ahead and I will let my guest introduce himself today, and we're going to go from there. So my name is George. First of all, thanks for having me. My name is George Rago. I'm the head instructor here at the Jukido Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Palm Coast in Flagler County, Florida. I'm a lifelong martial artist. Love teaching people of every walk uh, of life from Children, I always say, you know, I've taught everybody from autistic children to people in special forces and 
everything in between. And so uh, I consider it a, a privilege and an honor to be able to to contribute where I can. And and uh, I guess that's the short version. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And I, you know, my history with you, and I will talk about it a little bit. You know, I heard about you keto when I was in the police academy. Yes. And as I started my career, uh, it was suggested that I go into some form of martial arts and everything like that. Um, I had a martial arts background in, when I was a kid. I did right, karate right. growing up, but I didn't really think it would come to my adult life right. and into law enforcement. How did you get started in martial arts? So I'll try to be as brief as I can. So the way that I always use my parents' explanation, my parents said that from basically as soon as I could move around, I I was fascinated with anything like combat related, whether it was Bruce Lee flicks, cowboy movies, military movies, Bruce, you know, like it, it didn't pro wrestling was a big thing growing up. Where that initial instinct came from, Lord only knows. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, I always, you know, I was wrestling with friends, with pillows, you know, jumping off the stairs, you know, yeah. acting like Macho Man Randy Savage or something. So just kind of always had this preoccupation with this thing. And uh, at some point in my early childhood, that kind of morphed into the martial arts direction. I kind of became fascinated with this idea of kind of the dualism of, uh, you know, the pro wrestlers were clearly big, strong muscular guys, people you didn't, you know, like, uh, probably going to stay away from those guys. But something about the martial arts, um, uh, I hate to say mystique, but perhaps mystique of where you would never know. You look at this person and you go, this guy could be an accountant or whatever, but yet, you know, was a quite capable, physically capable individual. For some reason, even as a kid, even if I couldn't articulate it that way as a kid, that idea kind of appealed to me. Uh, in any case, so I was a pretty hyperactive kid, uh, and my immigrant parents uh, were not keen on the idea of me learning how to fight because I was already, you know, now it's like, the, well, he's already kind of uh, inclined to do this. Now we'll teach him how to do it the right way, and it's going to be a dangerous thing. Um, but eventually, my, my father kind of uh, told my mom, you know, listen, let the boy try it for a month or two. He'll get it out of his system, and that will be that. And uh, I'm. I'm still, still here. here, still here. So it wasn't so, just a, a phase. It was not, definitely not a phase. And, and of course, as I came into the, the, the I was very fortunate to walk into uh, a legit, you know, as legit as legit gets dojo um, and not, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the hyper-commercialized kind of Mick dojos of the world kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate. Um, but once I got into it, you know, uh, the over time, the idea of kind of a, you know, a lot of kids are into, you know, whether it's Ninja Turtles or pro wrestling, whatever it is, and kind of more from kind of the TV cartoon version of martial arts to kind of the, uh, the deeper aspects of martial arts in terms of not only uh, physical application, but also philosophy and so forth. So, right, right. And we're going to talk about that a lot because I've noticed, especially, you know, Virginian Jiu-Jitsu is very popular yes. right now. And it's, you know, everyone just thinks it's just rolling and tumbling and whatever. Right. And even, even, even here, where there's so much more philosophy and discipline built into it than just the physical aspect of it. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't understand. And especially in like a law enforcement capacity, but you can use it for any... Yes, professional walk right. of life, you need that. I think everyone's so used to instant gratification, whereas in martial arts, with and I feel like that's a very specific discipline, you are immediately told you are not good at this. Like, you know right. what I mean? If you're doing right. something wrong, 
you're getting that immediate feedback. Not only are you getting the immediate feedback in terms of you're wrong, it's also impossible to lie, mm-hmm. right? Every once in a while, we'll get someone who comes in and, you know, he's a 13th degree black belt, Navy SEAL, you know, Grand Ninja Master guy, right? And he's 22 years old. And um, that's all fine and dandy, but once you step on the mats, it's very, very difficult. You know, it's like me saying I know a foreign language and then you pop me in, you know, middle of Russian class and I just can't hold my own. It's very difficult to, to when, when push comes to shove, quite literally, to kind of fake it. Either, mm-hmm. either you have the capability or, or, or you don't. Right. Yeah, right. And, you know, I started uh, eight, nine months ago now. I started in CrossFit. Mm. And that's one of those things that you can kind of fake it. Right. Um, if you have any kind of lifting experience... You can, you can do CrossFit and, you know, you might be a little extra sore or whatever, but there's a lot more give and take. Right. Um, I feel like when you are one-on-one on the mat, it's really hard to hide those imperfections or whatever. And I think that being held accountable in that mm. sense translates outside of the dojo as well. I, I couldn't agree more. You, 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 it, it, it's not only hard, hard to lie to others, but it's hard to lie to yourself, mm-hmm. right? And so... Usually people have one of two reactions when when they experience that. It's either one, this is really counter to my mental image of myself and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'm a big tough guy or I can last or my cardio is good, whatever the thing is. And then, you know, it's like you come to find out maybe, maybe you're not as bad as you thought you were. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, other people go like, I'm really not as bad as I thought I was. I need a you know, I, I can fix this kind of right, a thing. Right. And, and and when I say bad, I don't mean in the, you know, uh, alpha male type of a way. But just, you know, a lot of, frankly, men have a, 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 a significantly overinflated view of how capable they are. Sure. And uh, where sometimes with female students, actually, it's quite refreshing because they come in already kind of with this built-in, I am physically smaller, I'm not going to overpower some, you know, gorilla-sized man. And so they're kind of willing and ready from day one. And a lot of the time, um, you know, we got plenty of good guys too, but sometimes you get guys who, you know, they, it takes a little bit of a, almost a, a boot camp mentality where they need to be broken down a little yeah. bit before they can make forward progress. And what I've noticed is because I've never had the physical prowess, but whenever I get on the mats, and, you know, you start seeing like, oh, I actually am capable of this. Mm. Like you start seeing down the line, like, you know, I'm doing baby blocks. I'm, I'm, I'm bicycling with the training wheel. Sure. But I can see that this is capable for someone like me. And so that builds confidence. That's what, when I came here, that's what I had. I had discovered that there's a way to build confidence through learning a, a martial art. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could, could, couldn't agree more. You know, it, it, it gives you a, 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 you may not be there yet, but it gives you a, a, a roadmap, a vision of like, I, I may not be there yet, but I can see that I can get there. I can I can see the logical progression as I extrapolate this out in my mind, and it's just a matter of um, being consistent and sticking with it, and kind of, you know, uh, the 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 I don't mean it in the negative sense, but the daily grind of it, just mm-hmm. keeping at it more. That sometimes it's not who's good, it's who's left. Yeah, and yeah, and, absolutely. and that's and, that's and I key. feel like that's a lot of the way you know, a lot of things in life is, um, you start something really, you know, red hot, you know, you think about like, uh, New Year's resolutions, right? Everyone's in the gym January 1st. Yeah. And by January 17th, who's left? Yeah. Yeah. Half, half is left. And by February, it's less than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that comes back to the discipline we were talking about and the philosophy and we're going to, we're going to touch on that in just a minute, but go back to your story. So 
you kind of, you, you came across it. How old were you when you started? About eight, nine years old okay. in that range, Which, yeah. It's kind of around where most kids kind of start in martial arts, I think. I think that's yeah. when I started in karate. Um, so from there, what happened? So I started at the dojo of a man by the name of Paul Arell. And uh, Paul Arell, Master Arell, is a uh, one of a small handful of uh uh, pioneers uh, in the American martial arts scene. He actually started the very first martial arts school of any kind in the state of Connecticut. Maybe even New England, but we can't say that for absolute certainty. But for Connecticut, we can absolutely say it with certainty. So, um, uh, And so I started in his dojo, and uh, he, again, truly blessed to walk into his place because he, he was just um, simultaneously one of the most... Uh, Simultaneously, in the same man, one of the gentlest humans I've ever known, but but also the most dangerous as well. You know, at the Which very is same kind time. Of what you were saying about like you, know, you see this unassuming person. Yes, yes. Like they wouldn't try to fly. And, and 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 honestly, you know, despite the fact that uh, he was a marine, uh, and I say was because he's passed on now, he wouldn't allow us to say that when he, right, when he right, was right. when he was alive. But uh, you know, he was. Five three, you know. Maybe if you asked him, he was five four, five mm -hmm. five. But he, you know, small guy. But uh, um, yeah. So I started down that path and uh, and have continued uh, training uh, on that path and have, you know have traveled and done a little bit of competition and so forth. But uh, my focus has always been on uh, our system of jujitsu, the Jukido system of jujitsu, as a, as it applies for practical, real world self defense. And although I've kind of experienced the competition side, kind of the sport aspect to martial arts, um, ultimately, uh, like my teacher, I've always come back to uh, kind of what is the most universal application of this thing, um, where it can be tailored to children who are being bullied, it could be tailored to law enforcement, it could be you know tailored to competition, but the most universal uh, uh, approach to the art is one that, that focuses on, on uh, well, everything's on the table kind of a broad self-defense approach. And uh, I've, uh, uh, I've just been fascinated with, with it ever since. You know, if, to me as a child, uh, I remember I walked in the dojo for the first time and I saw a young lady by the name of Amy, who herself was maybe five feet tall. And uh, I remember my mother speaking to Master Arell, but I don't know what they were talking about because I was just fascinated watching this girl who was maybe 14, 15 at the time. And she was just throwing these guys around who were significantly bigger. And it was very clear that it wasn't a, um, with all due respect to some of our Aikido friends, it was not a, they weren't giving it to her. Let's put it that way. Like she was as legitimate as legitimate could be throwing these guys around. And at that time, it looked and felt like magic mm -hmm. to me. And the truth is, is that even today, uh, although I, 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 uh, uh, I understand more, so maybe I know the magician's secret, so to speak. But uh, I'm just as fascinated, even if it's from behind the curtain. Right. You know, the way a magician may be fascinated with how to put on an illusion, uh, and it's not the same mystique as the person who's watching it in the audience, mm -hmm. but there's still a, a fascination. It's almost like you respect the craft. Yes, as and to the that's right. I think that's that's exactly correct. Where I've never I've never had that diminish. And in fact, I think the longer I do it, the more in love with it I am. Mm -hmm. So um, given that reality that it felt like it was just my fascination for, for all things uh, martial arts um, was just compounding. It wasn't, it wasn't... Nothing was coming away from me. Yeah, it wasn't stalling out. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, 
every class I teach, every time I train, every time I get to talk about it or write about it or read about it, it's not, you know, I'll be done with class and then I'll go home and I'll, I'll be reading about martial arts or writing about it or thinking about it. So it's not a, it's not a, I need a clock out. I'm constantly. Right. And I feel like that's what we're always trying to accomplish is find something like that, you know, so not just a hobby, not yes. just a job, but when you can put something that you're passionate about and it literally can encompass your whole life, that's right. what we strive for. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. I feel, I feel, I tell people all the time that I'm the luckiest guy I know and that, you know, a lot of people do have, um, you know, it, it, it's a drag to go to work. Mm-hmm. And for me, it really isn't. I, 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 I take great pleasure in coming to teach, whether it's a kid's class or an adult class or more experienced people like black belts. It's just a real pleasure to be able to do this. And I, I never... It, I, I never take it for granted that I get to do, uh, I get to play in, in, in my pajamas and a colored belt and do it for a living. And although that wasn't initially uh, the way I thought it was going to work out, it's worked out that way. And so living in that spirit of, of uh, gratitude uh, is very, very important. I'm grateful for the art. I'm grateful for my teachers. I'm grateful for the students. I'm grateful that I get to do these things. And that's all through something I'm really passionate about. And and um, and for different people that can take different forms, but to be able to, in Japanese they call it ikage, where it's like this idea that you're you, you find this 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 place where your your work and your passion it's something you know I can make money doing it, but I can have fun doing it. I can serve the community, I can serve myself, I can serve the family, and everything's kind of harmonized on all those levels, uh, and uh, without needing to make you know. Uh, compromises, so to speak, right. uh, to the quality of the art. So through all this, I mean, you've been at it for a while now, have you ever felt a sense of burnout or things like that regarding this path? Uh, that's, a, that's uh, I don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. So I'm human, right? So there's definitely moments where um, uh, my fr- you know, you're frustrated with uh, you, 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 there's something you're working on and you're just not quite getting it. Or as a teacher, uh, you, you may get frustrated with, I didn't communicate that as effectively as I wanted to. And so it bugs you, you know, and maybe you have a, sh- a string of two or three of those in a row. Uh, and, you know, having the weekend off doesn't hurt. But, but, but again, it's on the flip side, you know, halfway through that weekend, I'm already thinking about, class on and never really totally leaves you gotcha. and so so I think the shortest answer is not really I've never had like I need a month off okay. I need to step away from this that has never that has never uh, happened and when you do get frustrated either by a technique or by you know something teaching didn't go right what brings you back is it just that little moment of like reprieve or is there something that in your mind kind of get you back to it. I feel like, and I ask that because I feel like everybody listening has a passion somewhere that gets taken out of them. You know, they lose yeah. their, their yeah. passion coins. And I'm trying to figure out how they can get those coins back. So as cliche as it may sound, uh, I would say that again, I try to remind myself frequently of how fortunate I am, right? So if I'm, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm working with 10-8 and I'm trying to show him an arm bar or a hip throw, and it just isn't working out, and class is now over, and I'm on the drive home going, damn it, I just, I wish I had 10 more minutes with him, or it just, I, I didn't articulate that as well as I could have, and I'm flustered by it. I sometimes have to just kind of sit back, and I remind myself, like, dude, you're frustrated about teaching someone a hip throw. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, if there's anything to be frustrated about, that's a that's a pretty cool thing, you know. Like, you know, and there's there's class tomorrow. You'll you'll, you'll get back to it. So, kind of keeping the big picture in mind, and keeping in mind that it, you know, like in some sense, this is like the ultimate first world problem, where like in the grand scheme of things, you know, don't don't lose sleep over you know an elbow lock. Right. Like you know, it, you're getting to teach people how to do something you love and, and just kind of uh, stepping back and, 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 and being in a spirit of, 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 of gratitude is, is uh, just, I'm just immensely grateful for what I do. And so reminding myself of that is, is enough, you know, it, it could be different, you know, I could be working at, you know, I don't know, some shop somewhere doing something I absolutely dread. And, uh, you know, in the grand scheme, my frustrations are pretty, pretty small. Right. And I think, I think what you said about keeping the big picture in mind. I think yeah. that's very important. It's so easy to get focused on a goal, especially like an immediate goal. Yeah. You don't get it. And then you realize, well, it's just, you know, one step of a thousand. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, not, not, not to, to belabor the point, but I always tell my students that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes have to remind myself of that, you know, where if this, if this isn't, didn't happen today, this technique or this idea that I was trying to convey or whatever, if it didn't happen today, it's not a sprint. This is a, it's a marathon, right. and so just again pulling back and and gaining some perspective on on you know sometimes you can get stuck in the minutia of something, and sure. it just takes a moment to step back. Right, and it's kind of like you know I get fixated on numbers and, and goals and things like that, and it's like you, know, you think about dieting or something like right. that, and, and exercise. If you you know don't hit your goal weight by a certain time, oh I failed. Well, no, because you have all this path of success and, and getting healthier along the way so if it takes an extra week month whatever you're still on the right path. yeah yeah it's, it's funny that you bring that analogy up because i use that one all the time where i'll say you know uh you, you put a number out there let's say by uh, december 1st i need to lose 15 pounds and december 1st comes and you've lost 13 to walk away from that going i absolutely am a failure mm-hmm. it's like dude it's just about you just put something out there that's Fees challenging, but also in the realm of realistic. And, you know, maybe it's 16 pounds, maybe it's 13 pounds, but, you know, it's just you're putting something out there to then lose 13 pounds and go, I failed. And let's go eat a double cheeseburger now. I go, you're going to lose all that progress, you yeah. know. So, so again, stepping back and going, I'll, I'll, hit, I'll hit the 15th pound in a week. Mm-hmm. I just need another week, you know, and kind of giving yourself... Um, that flexibility uh, within reason, and that kind of brings up that that age old thing, like how old does, or how long does it take to achieve your black belt? Mm. It's that same kind of thing, where whereas you're gonna, as long as you stay on the path, right, you'll get it eventually. There's no, there's no time frame. That's right. That in a legitimate martial arts school of any style, uh, that's one of the, the 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 questions that you know teachers and sensei and and. and so forth will get most often is you know how long does it take to get a black belt you know or how long does it take the average person to get a black belt and my usual response is the average person doesn't get a black belt and how long it takes is you know uh, the quickest uh, I've ever awarded someone a black belt is four years and but I've also had students be with me 12 13 who still don't have one so it's it's you know it's all it's all like most things in life the more you put in the more you get out and everybody's situation is different you know you can have someone who's a you know, a, a mat rat, a dojo, you know, they, 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 you can't beat them away with a stick kind of a thing. And then you have someone who comes in, they're dedicated, but they do their two classes a week and that's it, you know. And so uh, if you and I are both doing something, you know, if, if you're, if you're uh, studying the piano and you're doing it six days a week for an hour and I'm doing it twice a week, 15 minutes, 
at the end of the year, yeah, we've both been practicing the piano for a year, but the number of hours in is, sure. is a different, you know, it's just a different thing. Right. So, so it's hard to, uh, I would argue it's impossible to quantify and go, this is how long it will take you. Especially when you walk in the door, I've never met you. I have no idea what your level of dedication is like, you know, what your commitment level is like. So, um, you know, the most important thing is, like I said earlier, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's who, who, if you stick around long enough, you and you're and you're genuine. You'll you'll get there. It's just consistency, uh, sometimes over intensity. Consistency mm-hmm. over time versus short bursts of intensity. Sure. And that's where, uh, and I've said this before. You know, motivation is great, but discipline gets the job done. Uh, motivation gets you started. Discipline gets the job done. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's absolutely true. Again, January first, you're filled with so many motivated people. But by February first, you see who really has the discipline to continue the goal. That's right. That's right. So. That being said, you've been on this marathon, and you are—you have your black belt. Yes. I think I read on the side you have multiple black belts. Yeah, so I'm a fifth-degree black belt in jujitsu and a third-degree black belt in karate. Okay. Yeah. And what what is that? What do those degrees mean? What does all that mean? Wow, that is a—that's a difficult question. So, uh, for the for the person who is certainly in the Japanese martial arts, uh, most people kind of think is the white belt is the beginner. And the black belt is like the expert or the master. And in the Japanese martial arts, that's actually pretty far from the truth. Um, A black belt is certainly someone who is competent and capable and proficient uh, in the same way that maybe a high school graduate is, right? So you've gone through all these years of school and, or maybe even, maybe even college, right? Like you've, uh, it's, it's a real accomplishment. So it's not to undermine or demean it. It's a real accomplishment. But if you just graduated college and you're, you know, or you just got out of the police academy, you've completed that. That's a real thing. And you're, you should be proud of that achievement that you've completed this and now you can actually call yourself a police officer. But it's now day one on the job. So a beginner black belt, that's, what, that's the equivalent. Okay, you've got a black belt. You're now an officer. You're, you know, you're, you're, on the, you're on the street now, but this is day one. So to say that this cop who's been on the job for two weeks is the same as this cop who's been on the job for 20 years. It, it, they're both cops. They both can say, you know, or they're both black belts, but there's a, there's a massive difference uh, between the two. And um, so the degrees of black belt uh, recognize commitment of time, uh, continued growth technically. Um, and, and so, uh, in a, again, in a legitimate martial arts, the degrees, you know, you can equate it to something like uh, police or military rank. Right, like you know, uh, there's a there's a difference between you know this person and a four star general, sure. and and they're both in the military. They both have achieved what they've achieved, but um, you know, for someone who's been doing as long as I have, you know, uh, thirty years, you know, if you got your black belt, let's say in four or five or ten, well, in the grand scheme, twenty years have passed by. That guy was a relative beginner to where I am now. Gotcha. You know, it, compared to the average Joe. They're they're incredible, sure. but in comparison to you know someone who's been doing it for a much longer period of time, you know it, you know how many in, in in twenty thirty years how many PhDs could you have? Sure. Or, you know, and I think that's a great analogy and kind of breaks it down to where people can understand because everybody listening knows what day one on the job is. You think you're you know really tough guy, right? But you certainly again you quickly find out that you don't know nothing. Yeah. Um. So that makes sense. So. 
this brand or this this tech, this form of jujitsu is significantly yes. different than Brazilian jujitsu. Yes. Um, having experienced both, mm -hmm. can you kind of go through and explain the differences and how this is this is a very unique just form of martial art? I feel like it encompasses a lot. Yes. So without getting uh, too nerdy or cheap plugging the book, right? Um, jujitsu historically is what we would call a, a very complete martial art. So it has a, uh, if you thought of it as a pyramid, perhaps, the base of it is a very grappling-oriented, close contact thing. Joint locks, chokes, throwing techniques. But there also are uh, striking techniques, for example, pressure points, uh, weapons disarmament. So it's a very complete martial art. Uh, and so I always say that for us, uh, it isn't so much, uh, how should I say this diplomatically, it isn't so much what we focus on, it's that we haven't lost our focus. Mm -hmm. So as a martial art, we have two primary objectives, or, or, or two, two, two assumptions. Number one is that um, this is, if you're using this stuff, uh, size and strength are against you, physical attributes. So meaning that if you're learning this, you assume that the person that you may be dealing with physically is younger than you, stronger than you, faster than you. So just going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, mano y mano, again, if I've got some NFL-sized guy that I'm trying to put in the back of a car, you know, just toe-to-toe, -to -toe, attribute for attribute, that's going to be a problem. So you assume that you're the smaller, weaker individual, and it'll be a pleasant surprise if you're not. Uh, and the second thing is that you assume it's happening in the real world. Now, that's very broad, what a law enforcement officer is dealing with versus a kid who's being bullied versus some lady who's grabbed in a parking lot. Uh, they all are unique, but they're happening in a real-world context. And so because it's happening in a real-world context and because you're going to be the physically smaller, weaker individual, you, you can't afford to hyper-specialize, meaning... The classic example would be something like uh, people think of a boxer and they would think, you know, a boxer is an expert striker. And that's kind of true. They're an expert puncher. Mm -hmm. And they're an expert puncher when they have gloves on and they assume someone can't grab and tackle them. And further with the assumption that if they do come together in a clinch, that they're going to be artificially separated. So there's a lot of degrees of specialization going on there. Um, and so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, at least as it is practiced today, and so I'm speaking with a very broad brush, is kind of um, the way I would say 90 to 95% of schools practice it today. It is Jiu-Jitsu, but it is a more hyper-specialized form of Jiu-Jitsu where almost everything, if not everything, is exclusively ground grappling. Uh, so if you thought of it as a pie chart maybe, uh, Tene, for us, groundwork or grappling technique, let's say on the ground, is a very, very important and significant slice of the pie chart. But it is one slice of the pie chart, where with modern-day Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's the, that's the entirety of the pie chart. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like saying, what's the difference between a scientist and a biologist? Okay. Well... A biologist is a more specialized... Now, if I study... Not only am I a biologist, but I study insects exclusively. And then this type of insect from this place in South America, you're just now specializing... Now, if you specialize that deeply at something, you're probably going to get pretty damn good at that thing, right? So if this guy's a, you know, been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for 30 years and you get on the floor with this guy, you're going to have a hard time. This is going to be rough. 
and uh, that's great. But for us, as a as a as a complete martial art, we can't afford to put all the eggs in exclusively the groundwork basket. So it's like maybe the difference between a an electrician and a handyman, in a sense. Where uh, and I'm 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 grossly oversimplifying. But um, so we stick to a very historical. Um, a historically based but modern, modern uh, relevant for the modern day form of jujitsu, where we're not really interested in you know what's a a, a two point move or a four point move, or we just don't have really any regard for that whatsoever, and uh, we want to be able to to have not really necessarily a mixed martial art but a complete martial art, and um, and and uh, listen, Brazilian jujitsu is is great. And, and there are some older school Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu places that do teach a bit more of a well-rounded system. Um, but these days, a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is A, uh, groundwork exclusive and increasingly groundwork for sport. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're training on the mats for the mats as opposed to training on the mats for the street. And, uh, and again, that's not even really a question of, of uh, better or worse. It's just a matter of knowing that if one is to pursue martial arts training, that their goals and the goals of the school mesh and they line up, right? If, if I'm looking to be um, effective at my job in law enforcement and I join a school that's trying to turn out Olympic Taekwondo champions, it's not really a matter of better or worse. It's just those goals don't really closely align. And you want to make sure that your goals, uh, whatever they be, and the, the goals of the, the, the academy or the school or the gym or the dojo that you join, that those, those things are closely aligned so that there's not a, uh, you know, a discrepancy between what they're providing and what you're looking for. Absolutely. And, you know, I noticed when I practiced here and, and when I went to a BJJ gym, heavy influence on groundwork, which is important because when yes. the fight goes to the ground, you, you definitely want to be competent. But that's when the fight goes to the ground. If yes. the fight has to go to the ground, you need to know how to get them to the ground in an effective way as well. Yes. Um, and, and everybody listening knows that the defensive tactics we learn in the academy are not effective. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was taught here, and, and everybody who sees the, the video component of this will see it as well. Yeah. It's just, that's why I always appreciated this for this gym for what it was, and this dojo for what it was, is that you did see the whole thing, like, from the uh, kind of inception of the struggle, whatever right, it might right. be, to the ground, to the to the whatever the end result. Might How be. did we get to the ground? Correct. Yeah, and making sure that we get to the ground in a way where when we get there, it's mostly you get there, and if I go, it's my option to go. Right. Uh, and that I uh, start from kind of a superior position. And listen, things happen, and 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 if you end up underneath someone, you need to be able to handle that. And no one being competent at, at grappling on the ground gives you that skill. But um, ideally, you know, you you want to you want to kind of have the option of who, who who's positioned where, and making sure that you know in our art we do a lot of um, throwing techniques, which is kind of like the logical precursor to the groundwork, uh, and making sure that you can get someone down there through takedowns or throws or whatever, and make sure that once they're down there, you have control of them, and that you don't get socked on the way in, or if someone's grabbed you in a headlock or a choke or whatever the case may be, that you can deal with that initial uh, situation. Sure. And it's definitely, you know, and, and hopefully everyone that sees the throws in, in the video portion will see, 
you know, it seems it's a very uh, superiority of violence, right? Mm -hmm. you, it is violence of action for sure. Yeah. And I know a lot of people because I've showed some of your videos beforehand, and they're yeah. like, "That's great," but I don't know. I can't see me doing that in a gun belt in a mm -hmm. situation. But you know, what I've seen from being here is that there are ways of doing these things to what's the word accommodate sure. for for the equipment that we have on us and do things safely. Yes. At the very end of the day. You know, we want the suspect or the person that we're throwing, we're trying to end the threat. We're not trying to hurt them. Yes, yes. And that's kind of what is taught is that, you know, get them to a place where you have the superior positioning to complete what's going on. Yeah, I would say a couple of things about that. I think it's, it, it's, um, it's fair but slightly misguided, right? Because uh, some of the same people that would say something about that, like, like for a throw, for example, uh, would have no problem grappling on the ground and, you know, your belt's within reach of them there. And like I said, we teach it in a very universal way, but everything can be made a little more specialized, right? So if I'm teaching a group class to members of the general public, it's one thing. If, if I've got 10 law enforcement guys, it's like, hey, put on the belt and we can see where, where we need to slightly modify here or there. Uh, and then as far as throwing techniques and takedowns, you know, once you become competent at it and like any skill, it does require that you become competent at it. You can put someone down on the ground um, as if you want to bring them six feet under, but you can also put them on the ground as if you know they're a baby and you're putting them in the in the crib. And then there's all of the spectrum in between that. And uh, and and you can and and the irony is is that the the more sophisticated you are at being able to do that, the more control you have, right? So like one of the things that's very hard to articulate to people is that the more physically capable you are of violence, the less violent you have to be. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if, again, NFL linebacker guy approaches me and I have no physical skills to handle this and I'm not confident in my ability to weather this storm, I'm immediately going to grab a weapon straight away, you know, because what alternative do I have? Sure. Things get more violent because I'm less capable. Where the more capable I am, uh, you know, the, the, the wider uh, array... Uh, kind of the, the use of force uh, is kind of at my hands a little bit more readily. Right, and I've noticed, and from people I've talked to that have been studying for a while, the more competent you are, it kind of gives you an extra skill for talking to people too, because you know if things are going to go a bad way, I can handle it when it gets to that point. So it kind of gives you that confidence of speaking to people and avoiding it altogether, because you know you're not scared. Like yes. You know, if it goes that way. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's great. Actually, I use this line of reasoning with parents all the time when they come to us, and it's it's more and more and more common every year, unfortunately, with bullying situations. And they'll tell me, you know, you know, Sensei Rego, Master Rego, uh, you know, I tell my kid all the time they got to stand up for themselves. They can't let the bully do this or that. And I go, if the kid doesn't have the physical confidence in his ability, if you take it the next step, right? So the kid tells the bully, "Leave me alone," and then the bully goes, "Or what?" What are you going to do if I grab you? And the kid goes, I got nothing. Mm -hmm. I got nothing. Then they're not even going to take that first step of leave me alone because they know they have nothing to fall back on, right? Whereas if, if the kid is physically confident in their ability to, to handle themselves, then when they say, hey, man, leave me alone, they can the, the whole energy, the vibe is different and they don't need to make a threat. But just you get the sense of, hey, man, you're barking up the wrong tree. And if the worst case scenario does happen, then they're 
they can, they can, they're, they're prepared. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, don't be afraid to jump in the deep end of the pool if I don't know how to swim, right? Like, but if I do know how to swim, I can actually walk around the pool with a different sense of confidence. Even if I'm in all decked out in my suit or whatever, I don't want to fall in. I don't want to fall in. But if I do fall in, I know I'm not drowning. Sure. I, I'm, I'm confident in my ability to to navigate that. As much as it may suck, I fell in. My cell phone's in my pocket and. You know, I really would have preferred not to have fallen into the pool, but it's an inconvenience mm-hmm. more than it is a life or death situation now. Sure, where if I don't know how to swim and there's nobody there to save me, it's now a life and death problem. Sure. You know? and, and when you said that about the bullying, it, it just, I, I see, you know, uh, police officers saying, put your hands up behind your back, you're under arrest, or what? Right. You know, or what are you going to do? And, you know, people, I, I see it all the time, people get in these situations and they don't know what to do and then they reach for a taser or whatever and things go way farther down the rabbit hole as if um, they didn't have to go, they didn't have yes. to they yes. have more understanding of what they could possibly do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And listen, I'm, I'm like team blue all the way. I, I, I'm a big supporter of law enforcement, but part of my support is the the advocacy for training, right? Like in... in and, and you guys are out, you know, out there in the thick of it. And frankly, I couldn't imagine being out there in the thick of it without some solid grasp of, I don't, you know, maybe I'm not even a black belt, but some real grasp of uh, that confidence to know that I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, the, the, the energy and the vibe, you know, you, you approach someone and they can, they, again, that what if I don't? You know, on kind of an animalistic level, you can sense they're anxious. They're telling me to put my hands up, but they're, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing behind that. Oh yeah, bad guys can read it like it's Yeah, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're criminals, but a lot of these guys are really street smart and, uh, and, uh, they can read kind of what's, what's being said with the body language and the tone and, and, and the rest of it. Absolutely. And, uh, and you yeah. can see in, in, you know, all the different police videos I've seen, whether it be live PD or actual body cameras, you can see the, when the police officer is not confident in themselves. Yeah. I can see it. The bad guy definitely can read that. And it's, you know, you're setting yourself for, up. It, before the situation even happens, you can see where it's going to go. Just yeah. Because it's so easy to read that kind of body language and you can kind of get the idea of it. Um, now, because you said this is a complete martial art, obviously BJJ is kind of the big popular one now. Yes. Um, are there many gyms and dojos like Jukido, or is it is this kind of like a select? Uh, the the, the truth the, the the answer is yes that there absolutely are both Jukido Jujitsu dojos and other uh, systems of Jujitsu that are not necessarily under the Jukido uh, brand um, or style, but there are others out there for sure uh, that have kind of a similar approach and where they kind of have never. Um, taken jujitsu and, and, and kind of broken it into different uh, branches of, of uh, what I always call hyper-specialization. They're certainly out there. The truth is, is that it's harder to find now. Certainly, you know, finding a BJJ school now is kind of like finding a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. It's not very difficult. But, but uh, you know, like, so, but, but there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a big... Uh, there's, you know, people talk about BJJ like it's one thing, but there's, there's a, there's schools with a variety of different levels of focus. You know, there's some schools that are 
are uh, in some sense very close to a Japanese model. Respect is taken very seriously. Uh, there's a certain level of decorum and practice. But you know, you'll see other rooms where it's like this is basically a glorified fight club, and the language in there, and I don't know how much of the philosophy is being taught. And as my sensei used to say all the time, any idiot can learn how to hurt someone. And so I always think of this like an invisible weapon, right? So just like if you're going to give someone a firearm, it's incumbent upon you to know to know the character of this person, teach them the responsible use of this weapon, that they're not just going to use this weapon willy-nilly. You know, they're not going to wild west it in their hand. Like it's a serious thing that you've got there. And ours is no different. And to teach the student that, you know, when you're competent at this, it is like having an invisible weapon. And there are certainly, uh, and this is not just true of BJJ, martial arts schools across the board, although in BJJ, if I'm being honest, being truthful, there's a wide spectrum. There's, we take this stuff super seriously as a martial art, not just as a sport. Uh, and there's a mindset shift there. It's not a game we're playing. It's a martial art. And we don't forget what that word martial means, combative art. Uh, and so that it is, it is incumbent upon us to also teach the the, phil the, the philosophy mm -hmm. and developing a sense of discipline and restraint with this, that you're only using it when you, when you need to use it. And it's not just kind of a, every night at the, at the dojo or the gym or the academy is not just a struggle to find out who's the alpha dog in the room all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that going on as well. I think, I think you know, you, you emphasize the martial part, but I think in, in places such as this, emphasizes the art part of it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whereas, you know, there, there's great amount of respect when you walk into this dojo and, um, you know, and I've noticed just, you know, through talking to you for several years and when I was here and just talking to people that were here, there's a different level of respect when you walk in here and you just, it doesn't feel like Fight Club. You feel like this is truly a community yes. because with any community, there's a strict set of guidelines and rules as any community needs, but it's, it's definitely, um, impressed upon the students and the people that come in here to, to study. Um, what are these philosophical guidelines, kind of rules, things, and what, you know, what is the, what causes that discipline? So I, th I think it, it, it goes back to what we were just talking about, right? If I'm going to, like I said, any idiot can learn how to hurt someone. You can teach someone how to do a rear naked choke in about two minutes. Because it's so easy to teach someone, it's in. I, I, I'm not just going to teach any 11-year-old how to rear naked choke someone. I don't. I don't know. You know what this kid's mentality is. I got to get to know this person. And so we treat the. We don't want it to be stuffy. You know where we can't have a sense of humor in a dojo or in a class. But we treat the art with the level of respect, uh, never losing sight of what it is. Right. No different than if we were at the shooting range. Like, hey man, there's guidelines. Even if you and I both know that this this pistol is not loaded. We know it, we bank on it. You still don't aim that, that firearm at someone, mm -hmm. right? It's just as a matter of seriousness and discipline, you, 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 you respect the craft and the lethality of that weapon. And we respect what we're doing here as well. So that draws a certain seriousness. I would, I would equate it to this. You know, I always use this example, and maybe it'll make sense for listeners. You have an 18-year-old kid who goes into you know, the Marine Corps, the, the Army, whatever. They go into boot camp. Why is the drill sergeant so obsessed with how they make their bed or shine their shoes? What the hell does that have to do with shooting this machine gun or being a rifleman? It has everything to do with it. If I can't trust you to make your bed correctly with discipline to these parameters, why would I let you 
cover my back when things, if you can't take care of those little things and respect those, you know, those traditions and those procedures, then uh, I don't really trust you. I need to, tr I need to trust your discipline and trust the seriousness. You're going to, you're going to take making this bed, if that's the order versus, you know, a, a this task in, 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 in Baghdad, you know, like in the streets of Baghdad with the same level of seriousness, that there's a, a certain seriousness uh, that, that, that comes with it. And it may seem kind of arbitrary. Why do I need to, you know, make sure my shoes are, are, are shine this way or the bed is made this way. But I think there's a lot, a lot to do. It has to go with disciplining that young man so that we get to the point where I can trust you in battle. Um, and same thing, you know, the philosophies and the, the discipline and the decorum of a traditional dojo are such that it builds that I trust this guy. If I'm going to teach him how to dump someone on his head or snap an elbow joint or choke someone unconscious, I got to know that this isn't just going to be used willy nilly at a frat party because we've had a, a few drinks and, you know, I want to, I want to, I, you know, we're, I see, I've seen a couple of UFCs and now I fancy myself a UFC guy. So I'm going to go around and do this thing or that thing. You know, we want to make sure that uh, people appreciate the seriousness of it and, and the philosophy and the tradition that comes with the art kind of helps make sure that those things are intertwined in a sense, that the physical aspects of the art and the philosophy are not segregated from one another, that, you know, you come in and we throw each other for half an hour or we choke each other's neck, but at the end we bow. There's a certain level of respect there that... Uh, that that kind of underpins the entire art. So I don't know if I answered your question directly, but no, but. absolutely. So then you know you talked about in the very beginning how this is a passion of yours. It's something that you do. You know, eat, sleep, breathe, yes. jujitsu, and and so on. So you wrote a book about the art as well. Yes, that's true. Okay, so what what made you go that path? What made you want to write a book? So I would say that the primary motivation uh, is. There are a lot of, I'm trying to be careful how I say this, particularly as it relates to jujitsu and judo uh, and martial arts more broadly, but specific to, to kind of the, the arts of ju, jujitsu, judo, jukido. There's a lot of um, narratives there where things are kind of uh, stri made straight and linear in a way uh, that, uh, and it's just not historically accurate, but it's kind of just easy and lazy for people to kind of continue a certain narrative. And I wanted to make sure that people had a, um, uh, an accurate sense of the history of these arts. Uh, and frankly, um, I wanted to make sure that there were certain pioneers and certain names that I was, uh, that were instrumental to the arts development in the United States. Um, and I was concerned that those names would be lost to time as more, you know, the Alio Gracies of the world are, are honored, rightfully so, but there were other names that just didn't get the marketing and the, the massive push of the UFC and BJJ and all those other things behind them, and, uh, but were just as significant. And I wanted to make sure that some of those uh, key figures were, that again, their names were not lost to time, and that people had a, a an enjoyable, easy read, that it wasn't something like you're reading a history book and it's just, you know, um, a bore, that it was an easy read, but also gave them an accurate sense uh, of, of the history of, of the art. Sure. And what was the process about writing the book? How did you go about doing all that? 
Uh, so there was a, my, my contributor to this book was a, a gentleman by the name of Abdul Rashid. And he actually is a fairly prolific martial arts uh, author. And uh, we actually connected, believe it or not, through a YouTube video. He posted a 20-minute documentary on the, the uh, history of jujitsu, judo, and aikido in the UK, in the United Kingdom. And uh, truth be told, that kind of turn-of-the-century history in the UK, where jujitsu was first introduced to the West, you know, uh, many, 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 many years before it made it to South America, that's actually my favorite period of history in jujitsu history. And um, so I got kind of a critical, cynical eye towards when I see things like, hey, you left out that key figure, or this was kind of missing. And I was super impressed with what he accomplished in this 20-minute documentary. So I shot the guy a note and said, hey, not for nothing, but I was really impressed with what you did. And, you know, you, you got me to purchase a couple of your books. You know, you, you've earned my purchase kind of a thing. And that was that. And within a, a day or two, I got a message back from him going, hey, I actually was thinking about writing one about the history of jujitsu and judo in the U.S. Maybe I could lean on you because you clearly know your stuff. And uh, we went back and forth. Uh, and after a few emails, he goes, you know what? Maybe you should just write the book because you clearly know this stuff backward and forward. And let me know where you need help. Mm -hmm. And um, I always kind of had in the back of my mind to write a book. But it's just such a broad topic. You know, where do you begin? Do you begin 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? Like, where do you begin? And uh, just having the framing of just the history of the art in the U.S. was enough for me to get going. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I knew, frankly, but when you're writing a book, you got to make sure that your dates are accurate. So, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you know, I know this in my mind, but can I, can I reference it somewhere? Can I, can I find the resource that confirms this knowledge, yes, and yeah. so, so um, thankfully, I've always enjoyed writing. So the writing aspect was uh, pretty, pretty easy. It was just more kind of making sure that dates and facts line up. Because again, one of the goals of the book was to make sure that things were factual and not just narrative. Uh, and uh, and so, so yeah. So and and the, I wrote the book came out in February and. And um, it was actually number one on Amazon for a few weeks on under the martial arts category and under sports history, which was far exceeded my expectations because it's a pretty niche book, you sure. know. So it's it's not only history, it's martial arts history. It's not only martial arts history, it's jujitsu history, and it's not only jujitsu history, it's jujitsu history as it pertains to the U.S. Right. So it's a pretty niche kind thing. Kind of goes what you were saying about being a biologist. Yes. Down the pyramid. That's right. That's right. And so to kind of have had the uh, early success that it had was was uh, a pleasant surprise. And the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. So I'm pretty happy about that. Very good. And for everyone listening, what is the name of the book and where do they find it? So they can find it on Amazon. You know, they've got Amazon Prime. It could be at their house tomorrow kind of a thing. Uh, that's the number one place at this point to, to get it and get it quickly would be Amazon. And the uh, book is The Founding of Jiu-Jitsu and Judo in America. Very good. Everyone go check that out. So we've kind of talked about everything that I had planned. Uh, I have one question, but I think we kind of touched over, but we'll kind of go over it real quick. Um, if, an, if an officer wants to get involved in Jiu-Jitsu, specifically yes. this kind of over you know overarching complete... Where do they look to find a gym or a dojo in their area? 
So I would say that, you know, uh, Google is, is your friend, but you're going to have to go a layer or two deeper. So I would start kind of categorizing the schools next to me, you know, like within a geographic area. And I would, uh, frankly, uh, showing my bias, but I, I, I am biased, uh, I would look first for jiu-jitsu. Um, could be Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but it could be one of the many forms of Japanese jiu-jitsu, even a judo school. The key, though, is to make sure, I would say two things. Number one, you do need at some point, maybe not in the very beginning stages, but at some point you do need what we call live training, meaning that uh, in BJJ they'll call that rolling. In judo or in, in Japanese forms of jiu-jitsu we call that randori. Uh, but you do need something where uh, you are able to pressure test the techniques. That doesn't need to happen on day one or even month one, but at some point you do need to be able to pressure test these things. Uh, so that's an important component, that there is kind of a, a sparring or live component to it. But you also need, uh, I would recommend, that ideally you also have training that kind of fills in the things that can't be safely done in live sparring, right? We're not, uh, you know, weapons disarming, for example. It's, you're not, you're not going to do that in a judo sparring or BJJ sparring. You need some time with that kind of dedicated practice. If you're doing a grappling-based martial art, uh, which is great because you need to know how to handle you need to know how to handle the human body, handle someone else's weight, their anatomy, leverage points, and manage your own. But you also need to be able to handle punches coming at your head or someone grabbing you, you in a headlock or grabbing your hair, things that you won't really encounter in a friendly, gentlemanly agreement of a sparring match. So I think that um, interviewing a school and asking them like, hey, I'm in law enforcement. Uh, and these are my concerns. Does your school honestly address those things? Maybe it's not in a group class. Maybe you need a little bit of side, side instruction privately to deal with some of the kind of uh, auxiliary issues as well. But I would definitely look um, for something that is as complete as you can get. Uh, I do think there is something to establishing like um, uh, you, don't, you don't want it to be uh, necessarily a jack of all trades. There should be, like I said, the base of the pyramid should be something grappling oriented, something like that. But on top of the base of the pyramid, you need to layer on a few things. And it would be ideal if, if the art kind of did that in a holistic manner. But sometimes that's not possible. So you may need to supplement in other ways. Okay. You know, in the same way that like if you do a, 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 a hands-on martial art for defensive tactics purposes, you're probably going to have to go to the shooting range too. You're not going to be doing firearms training in your BJJ class, right? That they're, they're, It's a supplemental sure. thing. And so um, getting as big a piece of the pie in your martial arts training would be great, but you know, you're, 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 you may need to supplement with some other things as well. Okay, and for any law enforcement officer who maybe is kind of halfway through their career or something, they, you know, they want to get into it, but they feel like they're too far past their prime or whatever it might be, or they're just worried that they're gonna go there and, you know, so far behind the curve, what would you say to someone kind of anxious about getting started in Jiu-Jitsu? I say that in the proper martial arts environment, again, not kind of the meathead uh, uh, fight club type of place, but somewhere where, um, frankly, the, the, the teacher is a teacher, not just a coach, right? They really want to teach. A mark of a good teacher to me is that they can teach anyone wherever they're at. 
right? So whether this person comes in and they look like a Greek god, chisel out of stone, you know, like they're an Olympic level athlete, or they're a kid with autism, or they're someone with, uh, you know, some herniated discs in their back or whatever the case is, uh, that the good teacher can kind of meet you where you're at. And it may take that you look at two or three or four different schools until you find the right teacher. Um, but if you find the right teacher, uh, should, you know, the right teacher will make sure they, again, meet you where you're at. Whether you're 20 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, or you have this issue or that issue, or you're maybe you're not in as good a shape as ideally you'd like to be in. They can meet you where you're at. And so um, everybody starts as a beginner, you know, everyone. Every black belt was a white belt. And, um, and listen, the time is going to pass you by either way. So in five years' time, you could either have five years' worth of training um, or you can be five years older and not have that training. And so, you know, um, the only day, uh, the, the only time worse than, than, than starting right now is, you know, tomorrow. don't start tomorrow, start, start today. Yeah. You know, that kind yeah. of a thing. And that's actually wisdom that was given to me in another capacity. But, you know, I just restarted school and they said, you know, you, it may take you five or six years to get to your master's degree or whatever right. you're going for. But if you don't start today, you're, you know, you're pushing that off. That's right. Start. And the time's going to pass, right? right? So in six years or five years or whatever, you'll either, you, that, you're going to be five or six years older either way. Right. So, are you going to be closer to your goal or are you going to be exactly where you started? Amen. Exactly. So um, sometimes, you know, I think, I think tonight the, the big thing is just you got to take the first step. Just get the ball rolling a little bit. And it's incredible the, the momentum that you can pick up. But sometimes it's just taking that that first step, you know, and, and for law enforcement, for everyone, and again, I'm super biased, but especially for law enforcement, you know, like complacency is your enemy, you know, just because you haven't really needed it for the last two, three, five, ten years doesn't mean you won't need it tonight sure. or tomorrow and rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it, you know, I say all the time. I agree. Well, Master Rado, this has been an amazing uh, conversation. I really appreciate it. Everyone go buy the book. Uh, learn about it and then go to Google and find the competent gym in your area and go from there. So I really appreciate it. No, the honor is mine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. No problem. And everyone listening, stay tuned and go check out the Instagram. We're going to have a demonstration as well. Right, and we are back once again. I want to thank my guest, Mr. George Rago, for his time, both um, showing us stuff through the videos, which they've been starting on Instagram earlier in the week, and I'm going to continue to keep the uh, interest in the episode going. But different, simple tactics that you can use tonight, really, uh, to kind of get things going, get your roll on, and uh, they're they're simple enough. He explains them clear enough. You can do that. So I want to thank him for that. I want to thank him for his time, for the interview. And, of course, I want to thank him for everything he's done as my mentor, uh, both on the mats and especially off. So, once again, Mr. George Rago, thank you so much. Guys, go to Amazon right now if you're interested in learning more about the art 
of jujitsu and judo in America. Go pick up his book. It's on Amazon. The Founding of Jiu-Jitsu and Judo in America by Mr. George Rago and Mr. Abdul Rashid. Go ahead and get it. Obviously, Amazon Prime, free shipping, all that good stuff. Available at your convenience. Go check it out. Now, before we shove off, before we say adieu, before we leave today's episode, I want to touch on something that I was going to talk about last week following the conversation with Aram Cho. However, uh, Hurricane Ian had different plans. I decided to talk about my experience with that. One last thing about Hurricane Ian before I do this. Obviously, I talked about my personal experience being literally in the eye of the storm uh, and, and everything that came afterwards. But I really want to give a shout out to... Public Works, Utilities, The Linemen, uh, they are the true heroes of the recovery effort. No matter what your community is, if you are affected by a major storm, they are definitely the unsung heroes. You know, no no one's rocking the thin safety vest line or anything like that. But definitely appreciate them for what they do. And really, if you think about it, in in law enforcement or even fire, fire department service and things like that, even though not a lot of firefighters listen to me, it's okay, they're napping. Um, Public Works does so much to assist us in our in our day to day. Whether you call them, you know, the road and drain, or you know, whatever department you may call them in your individual jurisdiction, but blocking roads, uh, fixing things that go on throughout the uh, community, such a pivotal part of the the work we do in law enforcement, and I feel like they don't get enough. Uh, respect. So hats off. If you work in public works and you happen to be listening, awesome. If not, go uh, go thank your public work public works employees that uh, you know they're like the uh, forgotten coworkers that we have, right? We work for different communities. They're around. They do things for us. So if you do, just be sure to thank them for what they do. Don't be a dick. Same with tow truck tow truck drivers. They do a lot for us as well. I feel like all these guys and girls that do this, uh, sometimes it's forgotten. So I want to say that. On to what I really want to talk about, and that is religion, that's faith, that's spirituality. Last week, Aaron brought up his religious beliefs, and which I responded to him. I said, I'm not religious at all. I'm not. I've tried. I've tried quite a couple times. It's not for me. Even uh, as recently as this past summer, I, I was thinking like, huh, maybe it's not for me. But I do have a very strong backing in spirituality, morality, things that go with that. I, I I really think about philosophy a lot. I like to think that I'm very philosophical. A lot of times is uh, me in my car or just walking or just doing uh, menial tasks, and I'm always kind of philosophically thinking. So I've talked quite a bit on the show about stoicism, and I've definitely tried to impose that way of thinking onto you guys. Just kind of opening the door because it's been so beneficial to me in my personal life and my professional career, things like that. I've definitely broken through to some of you guys. Some people have actually reached out to me and said, hey, I got into stoicism, listening to you. Where do I go from here? And I've recommended, you know, the easy thing is is exactly what George Rago did for me, get you into Ryan Holiday. He is He's like the easiest one to digest. I mean, you could go straight to meditations with Marcus Aurelius, whatever. But that's where I go, right? But so it it got me thinking to the whole morality. I, I feel like the debate always goes, you know, if you don't have religion, then, you know, you can't be a moral person, can't be. I'm not here to trump 
trump anybody's religious beliefs or anything i'm not that's not what i do man i'm not i'm not really interested in that but you know i like to know how people are thinking i actually i do actually right next to my my desk here i have world religions at your fingertips i have it has a writing on all different major world religions i've taken world religion courses it's very interesting the philosophical side of it even the mysticism that comes with different uh, religion is very interesting to me. I like knowing the stories. Again, I have my own take on some of them, but it's very interesting. One point in my life, it was one of my goals to actually sit down and read the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran. Uh, I haven't, but it's it's just something, you know, maybe that's one of my bucket list items. I haven't really um, done that, but it's just interesting. I like being well-rounded. I like to know a lot of different things. So it kind of comes to the final point, the the pinpoint on this is, are there people in this job that are neither religious or philosophical, right? Um, if you listen to, I think it was Monday's episode of Punk Rock Cops, I think they talked about being um, agnostic or atheist. Um, I can't remember. If not, it's going to be in two weeks. I know they talked about it at one point. Um can you be? And if you are atheist or agnostic, can you be philosophical? Can you have like a what if, you know, what happens when? Because if you think about it, um, while Stoicism is not a religion, right, they talk about the afterlife a lot. And the afterlife is a big pinnacle in most major religions and what happens afterwards. And and that's why one of the reasons why Stoicism isn't a religion, because it's just, you know, you are going to die, period. Next topic, right? That's what the whole memento mori thing is. So, and obviously, there's other reasons why, obviously, Stoicism is just a school of thought, not a religion. So anyway, this is the stuff I was thinking about the other day at the gym, trying not to pass out. Um, I was thinking, like, can you be religious, or, I'm sorry, can you be a cop and not be philosophical? It comes down to that whole thing, can you have morals and so on and so forth. So think about it. I really want to know what you think. You can message me on Instagram or you can give me a call 352-610-1692. One more time. 352-610-1692. And let me know. Tell me what you think. Tell me, you know, your take on it. I'd love to play it at the beginning of next week's episode. Next week's episode. Look at that segue. So on Monday, we have the very first episode of the reboot of the Jersey Boys, me and Frank Castle. Check it out. We talk about um, everything. We talk about where I grew up. We talk about summers in New Jersey. Talk about some movies. You're definitely going to want to check that one out. It was a good one. And then on Thursday, our regularly scheduled episode, we have my new friend from uh, California. I have a lot, got a lot of California friends. We had Aram. Now we have her. Uh, we have physical trainer Heaven Duval Cox. She is known on the Instagram and the World Wide Web. Or, I'm sorry. That sounded really boomerish on the Instagram and the YouTube realms as the sandbag queen. And she has a lot of insight regarding uh, your own personal fitness goals and journey and a whole lot more. So you're definitely going to want to not miss that. It will be on Thursday. And again, Monday is going to be Frank Castle and myself, the first Jersey Boys episode on our new kind of regularly scheduled program. We'll explain why it's just he and I and none of the other hoodlums from New Jersey. And then the following week, we got Punk Rock Cops episode two. And then we have another um, 10-8 episode. And that's just kind of going to be the way things go. 
for this foreseeable future. Hopefully that'll last the entire year. I don't have an endpoint to the show just yet. Going to see how the show carries on. But until then, we're probably going to last until about June. And then I don't think we're going to go into August again this year because, you know, summer months are kind of hard to get some listens and views and stuff. Um, until then, check out the 10.8 merch store, 10-8-memes.ecwidequid.com. We've got a whole bunch of stuff there. We've got coasters, cups, shirts, stickers, koozies, a bunch of different things. Just go check it out. Uh, the more I sell, the more I can make. Um, and that's kind of it. You know, if you guys got interest in some new things, I just got a message today on Facebook saying, hey, I like this design. Can you put this in a different format? I'm more apt to do so if the design sells well. If it doesn't sell well, you know, then I'm not going to, not going to do so. We're trying to actually recreate a couple of designs from my very beginnings now that we have some more artistic abilities. So check out for that as well. Go listen to the old episodes. Uh, we got Aram and obviously everything before that. Check out the Instagram page at 108 underscore memes. You know where to find it. But go to the link tree in my bio. There's a couple cool things in there you want to check out. And right before we wrap up, I want to give one more shout out to my sponsors, TOC Public Relations, Fit Responders, RTI Training, Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. Great, uh, great for this episode. Hopefully you're motivated for that. And finally, Thin Mind Wines. Go check them out. Go support them. Until next time, friends, we will see you on the flip side. 108. Feel like I'm powering down. Pull my plug, I'm ready to go out. Doubled up on pills I take to sleep. They don't do anything for me. Paying my respects, projector scrolls through all we had. Don't let me stay a memory. A song you skip past shuffling.
to a place where they can't reach the edge, can't get out of their own way. Wicked space where we hide inside, where it rains every day and every night. So sing, sing if you got something to say. Never gonna see the light if you don't speak in the first place. Sorry, eyes, and you'd rather stay asleep, cause your summons of reality is better in your dreams. Do you remember when it wasn't so hard? Sick of seeing all these kids with their arms scarred. Gotta wonder how we let it get this far.